You're tuned in to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by Giagora, the world's first blockchain-based carbon removal marketplace. Here's your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jaspe. <laughs> I got your last name right. They figured it out. They figured it out. Did you put the accent aigu on it? No, je n'ai pas un accent aigu. <laughs> Great. Well, this is the first podcast ever of the codename Giagora. So we're still working on the name here, but it's all about reversing climate change here. Christoph Jospe here is quite an expert on that. It's awesome to be here. Just getting chills thinking that we're kicking it off. I love our name. We can't say it yet. We'll keep you posted on what it's actually going to be. But Giagora, it keeps your carbon down. It keeps your carbon down. Are you a little nervy? How are you feeling over there? I'm feeling good. I'm excited to do this. Ross, I'd like to ask you, why are you here? How do we wrangle you into this? You've got a pretty interesting story that I think our listeners would like to know about. Yeah, I've known Paul Gamble, one of the co-founders for a super long time since college. It was, I believe it was like a junior in college. But we kind of parted ways for a long time. I've been into blockchain stuff for a very long time. So then when this came along, I thought it was a very unique approach to it. But yeah, I think using this technology in a way that makes sense to remove carbon is quite a good use of it. And I know there's been some cases of blockchain tech that you're sort of asking, like, why does this need to exist? And it's nice to be working on something where it very clearly needs to exist. Yeah, not only needs to exist, if it doesn't, we're probably all screwed. I mean, I remember that was an awakening I had in 2012, was trying to figure out what was the next step in my career done a pretty good job raising money and doing some marketing for a small nonprofit, had decided I never want to work in a nonprofit again. But one of the classes I took as I was trying to figure it all out was global climate change. And for me, that was my aha moment. I thought, you know, this is not only an existential problem, but it requires a lot of solutions and engineers who can think about those solutions. And as not an engineer, I thought, well, the best way is to talk like an engineer and pretend to be an engineer and learn from engineers. And so was extremely fortunate to find one when I got my master's degree in environmental science and policy from Columbia University. And I met Klaus Lackner, who's one of the first people to talk about pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere at an industrial scale. So we're talking about direct air capture, like maybe a thousand to ten thousand times the effectiveness of a tree. And that began for me a ridiculously fast learning curve. I was raising money and doing marketing as chief strategist for the Center for Negative Carbon Emissions at Arizona State University. And I'll remember the day, one of the very few times when Twitter was actually useful, that I got a message from Paul, who basically said, hey, you know, I'm trying to learn more about what this carbon removal thing is. I'm a software engineer. Let's talk. And being someone who's very action-oriented, I said, I have time now. Let's talk immediately. And the conversation happened about a year and a half ago. What I realized then, it validated, if you mix science and software, you can really do some dangerous things. And I think it's for those reasons that I'm here today. That's great. The thing that caught my attention on this project was carbon removal is so interesting because you have the possibility for people to make products out of carbon as an input. So it's no longer just a waste product. It's an economic input. So if you can do that successfully, you will be able to short circuit the entire debate over economic growth versus the environment, which I think by intuition alone, people tend to fall on that. If you're a little bit right of center, you tend to think economic growth is super important and you're skeptical of the government's ability to manage climate change. And if you're on the left, you're kind of like a mere 
image of that. And I think the ability to use profit and good incentives through a marketplace for this could actually solve the problem and probably stop a lot of the arguing. So we could talk about how to do this rather than like, do we do this slash does this exist at all, etc. The ability to do all of that, I think, is super exciting. And I haven't seen much work on that. I guess that's a big part of why we're here. But yeah, I came out of blockchain stuff. I work with Tezos, still work with them, work with Blue Frontiers. They're building floating platforms on the ocean. Also a very big environmental project looking to do a lot of things with aquaculture, which is quite interesting. And there's supposed to be a special economic zone, but even more so where they have room to experiment with new legal norms and policies that would give them an ability to be nimble and also do quite a lot for the environment at the same time. So my interests kind of all aligned here perfectly. No thanks to Paul here for putting us all together. It's a very unique Venn diagram of all the interests here. Totally. And I just want to give a shout out to Consensus, which created an awesome forcing mechanism and probably the reason why we're doing this podcast here today, you know, week four of a hackathon. What's a hackathon? Well, it is right out of the startup book, come up with a business model and how are you going to execute it? And you have four weeks to do that and find a team that might have the competency to do that. And Paul and I had this idea independently. And when we got together, we realized, yeah, it's the same idea and let's do this. But before we jump into it, I'd like to just kind of level set on what is carbon removal? What's this yeah, phrase we, we throw talk about around? That. Yeah, we didn't yeah. really explain that. So what is it, Mr. Jospay? Yeah, well, it's taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And... When you do that, you want to make sure it doesn't go back into the atmosphere. When you want to make sure it doesn't go back into the atmosphere, it really comes down to permanence. It's, am I taking this out and is it being stored in something where I can be relatively sure that indeed it's out? Now, trees do it quite well. You look at a tree and it's stored as wood, right? I looked at some trees, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Photosynthesis. You learn it in first or second grade. It's one of the most powerful things on earth where your trees take carbon dioxide and emit oxygen, they use sunlight and they grow. So that's carbon removal, but it gets a little bit more exciting and more complicated than that because when trees burn, not really storing carbon anymore, now that carbon's back in the atmosphere. So I would call trees actually a carbon pool. You've also got carbon sinks. So let me try to get that lingo out of the way here. We've got- I confuse these still, so why don't you lay this on me? Totally. So a pool, think about it as something in your backyard where the walls can just fall down and the water falls all over the place. You contain ab- above-ground swimming pool ab- analogy? Yeah, <laughs> imagine an above-ground swimming pool. Okay. As long as the structure's there, the water's there, but it could fall apart. Versus a sink where there's no way that water will ever escape. It's there permanently. Ah, okay. So think about a rock. Rocks have been doing this thing. It's called weathering. It happens over a timescale of hundreds of years where very slowly the rocks carbonate and store a certain amount of carbon dioxide. Is carbonate the like Han Solo thing? Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Mm-hmm. Is that right? Ross, this is going to be a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Glad you like it. It's called banter, ladies and gentlemen. And we're just getting going. Once it's stored in a carbonate form, it's there permanently. Did I just derail that really hard? No, 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 no. <laughs> sorry. I mean, I'm not as big of a Star Wars fan. Hmm. When we store carbon dioxide in a material, you can think of it like a reverse mining operation. You've taken CO2 out of the air and you've put it into something. We can think about the biological side. We can also think about the chemical side. And as this podcast evolves, 
I'm really pumped to just put this in English. Like, let's not make this something that exists in only academia that people can't really understand or they debate about it. But let's find the people who are actually doing it, actually removing carbon and storing it in stuff. So, you know, we can think about a lot of different examples. I come from the field of direct air capture and can go deep on that. You know, there we're talking about machines sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere. Just literally doing that, just sucking it out. Literally of sucking it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do they actually make that sound? They make a, well, it depends <laughs> on the process, but a lot of the machines today are using fans to pull the air through a material. You're not getting that sound. Mm-mm. No, um, you are getting that oh, sound. Oh, you are getting it. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, I'm less interested if you don't have... It's more of a whir. Yeah, a whirring sound. You got anything else you could tell us about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, one of my favorites is thinking about mycelium, which is basically a mushroom type fungi, which is, you know, who I'm sitting across from. Did you just call me a mushroom? What? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Ross, I called you a fun guy. Oh, um, oh man. That was so dumb that it went right over my head. Wow. Yeah, right. Did did not care for that. The way that works is you let the fun guy do what it does really well, spread, and then create a new solid material where the carbon is now stored permanently. It's actually a company doing that, making drywall. So they're just building houses and they're storing carbon. Can it compete on cost too? Is it relatively close to normal drywall? Yeah, better, fewer chemicals, and just as good of a fire retardant. Wow. What do you say we bring on the first guest, the inaugural podcast here? What do you say we get Paul Gamble out here? I'd like to, but first I want to call an audible and say something that I had meant to say. And I think it's going to just set up Paul really nicely. Go ahead. Let's do it. I mean, it comes down to why do we care? Like, why is carbon removal necessary? It is because, first of all, let's just set the record straight. Climate change is real, very real. And it happens from there being too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is driving the greenhouse effect. Now, the only way to manage the greenhouse effect is to manage the total amount of atmospheric CO2. And just to throw some numbers around, it's a lot. It keeps going up. (laughs) That wasn't a number. No. (laughs) Get ready for it. So we're going to, and I'm not going to use acronyms at all. So I'm going to say parts per million. Mm -hmm. You cannot say PPM. But we have so many parts per million, it is more than 408. We add about two parts per million each year. If that exceeds a certain limit, all scientists agree, we're completely in deep water. Your seasteading business is going to do really well because everyone's going to want to live on stilts. And what it comes down to is we emit CO2 when we generate energy from human activity, all these things that we're trying to reduce the flow of CO2. And we're trying to figure out ways to replace carbon dioxide to produce energy. People agree this is not enough. So we need to look, now here comes the numbers, to how much are we emitting today, which is around 36 billion tons. In order to truly balance the books, I think we need to consider carbon removal as something that not only can allow for 36 billion tons a year to be removed, but even more to pay back the past debts. So with that, I think we should bring on Paul and let him introduce himself. <laughs> Thanks, Krista. So we start with a doomsday scenario now. Hi. Yeah, when I'm are Paul. We, <laughs> Paul. <laughs> when, when are we in the danger zone? How far are we from Kenny Loggins territory? Well, to piggyback off what Christoph was talking about, the UN IPCC, International Panel on Climate Change, has come out with recommendations or a paper estimating that around 450 parts per million of CO2 in the air is when things start getting really bad. Now, the problem is there is so much 
organic matter trapped under ice in Siberia, in northern Canada. That's called permafrost. As that ice melts because of warming climate, more of that organic matter gets exposed to the air and starts decomposing. And as it decomposes, it releases methane into the atmosphere. And methane is 25 times more potent as far as warming potential compared to carbon dioxide. It doesn't last as long in the atmosphere before the molecules degrade. It has more warming potential. So the problem is, as more warming happens, more of this ice melts more of the organic matter decomposes and it gets into the air, which accelerates the warming, which accelerates the melting. And we have this negative runaway feedback loop where things start to get really hot. So it sounds like you care about this. I do. Uh, (laughs) We didn't really introduce what the project is exactly here. So why don't you tell us how you're going to stop this, slow it down, fix it entirely? What's the plan? Okay. So Should I explain how I got into this too? Should I start there? Yeah, I guess that's good. We should probably talk about what we're doing at the company and what our roles are because I think we kind of skipped that a little bit. We we did. So so I'll say my background, Christoph told the story of how we met. But my background is I've been working in software consulting for a number of years as a project and product manager. I've built and shipped a number of apps. And I was working on a small business of my own a few years ago, which was completely unrelated to this. You don't want to talk about it, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's on my LinkedIn, so you can find out the smoky details there. I was tired of this business and decided to shut it down and sold it off. And I wanted to think about what was a really big problem to work on and something that would keep my attention because I get bored easily and started looking into climate change. And I have an engineer's training and I tend to think about things in terms of how do we fix this? How do we solve problems, not just make it less bad? And when I look around at the approaches that people are taking towards climate change, it's all mitigation. It's all just trying to make things less bad than they're going to be. Everyone seems to accept it that this is going to happen and we're just going to have to deal with the effects. Well, I don't. I don't accept that. I don't accept that we have to deal with warming, that we have to deal with sea level rise and people in coastal cities being affected. I don't accept that we have to deal with changing rain patterns that affects growth of agriculture around the world. I don't accept that we have to see social unrest in countries as people aren't able to grow food, as people aren't able to earn a livelihood by making food and selling it to people as these things happen started thinking about how do we fix this? Well, it seems like it's pretty straightforward, right? Like over time, since the Industrial Revolution, we've been burning these fuels and emitting gases into the air and we've caused this warming. What if we just reverse the process? What if we just took out all of these gases and put them somewhere? That's so intuitive, but why do people focus on reduction and replacement? Why is the obsession with that? (sighs) That's a good question. And I don't know the answer to that necessarily. Is it easier? Does it, what is it? Well, I mean, I think it comes down to low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. If you can insulate your home and it'll save you substantially on your energy bill, it's a much more cost effective way to manage your carbon. The problem is people are lazy and people don't always want to change their behaviors. I like to think about the analogy of what we're trying to do. We're kind of the street sweeper. Where if you say, hey, today, you know, we're dumping trash into the street and it's legal. No one's faulting us for it. You know, people wave around an idea of a price on carbon, but it's not really happening. Well, the street sweeper is able to unambiguously say, I took care of your trash and I put it away. 
It may be more expensive. It may motivate you to dump less of your trash into the street. It may motivate you to not dump your trash and create ways to replace that trash. But at the end of the day, no one wants to focus on the street sweeper holistically because it's really, really hard. And yeah. that, that gives me solace that no one's going to exactly copy our business idea here. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of work. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, it does seem easier. I mean, I remember growing up and probably the first time I heard about this was Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. I think I watched that documentary. I don't know how old I was. I've actually never seen that. Yeah, you just seen like the hockey stick graph and all that. <sighs> yeah, as a hockey player, I've always been sort of, <laughs> sort, sort of annoyed with <laughs> the use of that term, but yeah. Yeah, that's raising awareness of the NHL. The, well, that's oh, the I'm okay it, with right? that then. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know. It just seems easier, I guess, if you can just say, oh, we planted some trees to offset this, but it doesn't seem like permanently storing carbon or building stuff with it that has a life cycle much longer than that. Yeah, Christoph mentioned the idea of a carbon pool with trees, but the thing is, there's not even enough arable land on Earth. Like we have to keep in mind, like the population of Earth is growing. I think the best estimates I've seen are we'll probably max out around 10 billion or so, although there could be unforeseen things that cause that to go higher. But how are we going to feed 10 billion people? Well, we have to be growing crops that takes up land. And if we're constantly clearing land out of forests in order to grow crops, then we're taking more trees out of this carbon pool. So if we were to suddenly reverse that process and we're trying to take the approach of let's just plant as many trees as we possibly can to suck that carbon out of the atmosphere. They can't eat though, right? They can't eat. Yeah. Okay. So that causes the social strife that you're so worried about that climate change causes with I'm agriculture. I'm far more worried about social unrest. In fact, you could make a strong argument that the Syrian civil war and everything that's been happening in there since 2013 or so is caused by climate change. Weren't you saying there was droughts that were in the Yeah. Area? So back in the mid 2000s, there were severe droughts these extreme weather patterns, it's really difficult to tell with the data to state conclusively whether or not these are caused by climate change. But let's assume for the moment that this was. So these extreme droughts causing difficulty for farmers to grow crops, people start looking for economic opportunity. They move into more of the cities. They put more of a strain on the infrastructure of the cities. People start demonstrating for the governments to do something about that, to support this. And because Bashar al-Assad is a madman, he started using violent police demonstrations to quell these demonstrations. Well, people didn't like that. And there were many people who hadn't liked Assad and so saw this as an opportunity to start some sort of revolution against him. Well, that revolution was very quickly co-opted by insane terrorists from Al-Qaeda who ended up forming ISIS. And then you have the whole thing blowing up from there. Wow. Yeah. I guess people think about climate change. They mostly think of polar bears and they think of the coastal cities getting flooded. But I guess we don't really think about, yeah, if uh, weather patterns are disrupted and then people can't grow food and they urbanize too quickly then or unnaturally quickly. Like violence happens when people can't eat. It's a big problem. Yeah. People kind of forget about that social element of that. Yeah. I guess maybe now is a good time to talk about blockchain because you think blockchains have the chance to eliminate a lot of social strife and social problems. So <laughs> what's the connection here? Because I'm sure people listening will be like, what is the connection to blockchain? It took me a long time to figure that out. It was something I was really hoping to do. <laughs> you just you just wanted to incorporate <laughs> I, these two interests, I, I, right? I have, this, I have these two passions. I've been in kind of the blockchain space since about 2011, first time I heard about Bitcoin. I've been enamored and excited about Ethereum since probably early 2016. and I know for myself that the things that I work on, it works best when I'm also like really passionate about it. And blockchains I see as a way to decentralize the world. Like many social problems appear to be caused by centralization of power and centralization of authority and centralization of information. And the more that we can distribute really the information, um, whether that's through pricing things or, or otherwise, 
the more that we can decentralize that, the more capable people are of making good decisions and ultimately having good society-wide effects. I see. And uh, maybe I should take it back one step here. What is a blockchain? Oh, we're gonna we're gonna go there. Okay. I think you should probably should just give me, <laughs> don't don't launch too hard. But like, what's a distributed ledger? Give me just like a basic. Okay, so. Back in the mid-2000s, there were a bunch of people who were interested in finding ways to create a decentralized currency. And Bitcoin was published as a white paper, I think in 2008, as a response to what had happened in 2007 and the global credit crisis. Ultimately, a blockchain is just a record of transactions that are happening. And it's a record that everyone who's participating in the network has access to. So if we're just talking about Bitcoin, and if I were to send you some Bitcoin for some reason, and... <laughs> yeah, like I could never provide value to you that you would pay me uh, <laughs> Bitcoin. This is some reason. Impossible I would scenario. never pay Ross. Yeah. <laughs> you better pay me. <laughs> If I were to send that to you, the transaction is a debit from my account and a credit to your account. And that transaction gets recorded and observed by every other node in the network so that everyone can trust that when you try to spend those Bitcoins in the future, everyone knows that I don't also still have those. It's the problem, like if we have physical cash, like paper dollar bills, and I hold it, we know that you're not holding that same dollar bill, right? So we need a way to do that in a trustless manner in a digital sense. So that's Bitcoin. That was the first one. And Bitcoin is a blockchain and blockchains are more than just Bitcoin. And so then Ethereum came along, which is a way of these transactions are no longer just debits and credits from accounts, but they're actual execution of computer programs. And it's a computer program that everyone in the world can see. So we can trust that the inputs and outputs of this software is what the users of it say it is. It's pretty concise, actually. I feel like people ramble on on that question quite a lot. But you caught us up on all that history. That's good. I'm sure the listeners here from the hackathon will probably already be familiar. I hope so. You hope so? <laughs> <laughs> Did you finish the hackathon? Yeah. Had to quickly like learn everything they can <laughs> on blockchains. That's great. So then where does this fit in with carbon? How do they interact together? Yeah. So I've been really interested since I read this book called Rethinking Money back in I don't know, the spring of this year. And I would highly recommend anyone who's interested in cryptocurrencies and blockchains to read this book. And the funny thing is they don't even mention blockchains. But the idea is that small or localized or sort of purposeful currencies are potential solutions to a lot of different kinds of problems. More currencies is a good thing. And with Ethereum, we've seen this burgeoning effect of applications that are using new currencies that they're called tokens to facilitate the actions of what they're trying to get their users to do. So we started thinking about how can we manage the tracking of carbon. And actually, this sort of impetus for this idea was about two years ago, I was mentioning that I had this business that I wasn't doing anymore and I wanted to get focused on climate change. So I founded a meetup. I live in Seattle, so it's called Carbon Removal Seattle. And I started it as a way just to bring people together who are interested in figuring out ways with a profit driving mechanism to solve climate change. And so the hope was that people would bring projects and maybe spin out new businesses from this meetup. It sounds like something Seattle might uh, raise a sideways glance at. Profit and <laughs> profit. environment. Yes. Did you have any haters? Yes. At first, it's just on meetup.com. And there were several people who messaged and said, 
that, well, technology caused all these problems, so technology can't possibly fix this problem. And my response is, well, then what are you going to do? How else are we going to do it? Just like go back to being a hunter-gatherer, just go full primitivist on it? Right. Sort of an anti-humanist approach. For me, I'm very inspired by this like humanistic ideal of trying to make this a better situation for humans everywhere. I founded this meetup group and it's been great. A lot of people have been coming. We've been doing a lot of self-education and we've been networking with other groups, especially some of the ones that Christoph mentioned. And one of the members is a consultant or broker of carbon offsets. I started learning a lot from him about the way that carbon offsets are currently transacted and traded in the marketplace. I got to interrupt here. Christoph, this is a perfect opportunity for this joke you really want to say. Well, what might you call carbon broker? Oh, man, Ross, you just set me up for it. One of my passions is to just learn everything that has to do with anything about taking carbon out of the atmosphere and turning it into a product. And I was chatting with someone. He actually runs the New York Tech Meetup. Really smart guy. He immediately got what it is that we're working on. He's like, you're 10 years too early. I was like, respectfully disagree. But he gave me a moniker that I'm not going to let go. He called me a used carbon salesman. Used carbon salesman. Why isn't that the name of the podcast? That's kind of a funny joke. Yeah, Yeah, we could change it. I mean, look, it comes down to there are things we're not doing today that we can do. And how do we realign that incentive structure? And how does blockchain fundamentally change that? Paul got into some of the issues around double counting and just making it easier. But one of the things that I've been doing has actually been to supply carbon offsets to interested parties which are looking for novel ways to offset their carbon for a brand. So this was very relevant when Paul learned more from one of the people in his meetup group. Yeah. So I started thinking about, well, how can we just combine blockchains and carbon? And to me, the first most obvious way was when these carbon offsets that are currently being traded. So just for explanation's sake, there are a number of different jurisdictions around the world, California, Ontario, Quebec, and others that have cap and trade schemes in place. Meaning if you are a manufacturer of some good and you emit carbon dioxide in the process of your making whatever it is that you are, you are capped at a maximum number of tons of CO2 annually. And any more tons that you emit beyond that cap, you have to purchase offsets for. To, this, is, this is legally mandated. Yes, yeah, this is a government-driven solution. And so you have to buy these offsets and there are providers of offsets and they do all sorts of different things. They could vary from planting trees. They could be building something that's called a biodigester, which is taking organic material and breaking down the methane and burning it so that it at least comes out as carbon dioxide instead of methane. Again, I mentioned that was 25 times more potent. There are things like clean cook stoves that make it burn cleaner when cooking in a more remote or rural area. The thing that bothers me the most about these offsets is that they are often just counting reductions in emissions and they're not actually removing things. So the worst example of this is, say you are a power utility and you had been planning to build a coal power plant and instead you decide to build a natural gas plant burning natural gas emits less carbon dioxide. Did you did you actually want to do this or are you just saying, I'm going to build this and then you can like get paid not to? That is what it is. That is what it is. Oh, I didn't mean to take it right out yeah. of it. We're saying that because we're going to give these developers a credit, it's the amount of CO2 that you would have emitted if you were a coal plant minus the amount that you are emitting from the natural gas. So that difference between them. 
that amount gets counted as an offset, which is an asset that you can then sell. Is it valuable too? These range in price from two to twenty dollars typically. But per ton. Per ton. Yeah, these are traded in these carbon offset exchange marketplaces. Uh-huh. And it's a very convoluted process. It's very clear if you look at like the order of operations of how many different middlemen are involved, these different registries that track and trade these things, that this is definitely a process that was set up by regulators. There is very little economic evolving of the process involved. The whole point of blockchain is, or one of the biggest is that you can get rid of middlemen pretty easily and it's a trustless system. Yeah, exactly. And so that was really one of our first thoughts was if people are trading these carbon offsets and there exist middlemen that just have a database that is storing these offsets and tracking who owns them at what period of time, and they're getting paid to do that. That's exactly what a blockchain can solve. Like, we don't need to be paying this middleman and driving up the fees of this. And how much is it? How much are we paying to middlemen for offset markets? I've seen estimates that almost half of the overhead of creating these offsets and selling them. So, if you are the entrepreneur who's trying to sell the offsets, I've seen estimates that 40 to 60% of this is going into legal compliance and auditing and accounting of these things. Oh, so then we can drop the beloved but deservedly begrudged word at this point. It sounds like it's ripe for disruption. Oh, 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 we went there. (laughs) We can also say it's the Airbnb or Uber of X, if you'd like. (laughs) That annoys you as well. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the first kind of thought. Well, let's start tracking these. And actually, there are other projects that are working on this. Uh, Tracking what exactly? So tracking who owns the carbon offsets and at what time. So someone creates the offset and then they sell it and someone buys it. And now whoever buys it, which are usually corporations who are trying to either exist in the compliance markets where they are legally required to do this or in the voluntary markets where for the goodwill, because their shareholders are demanding it or for the PR that they'll generate from it are completely offsetting their business operations. And many of the large tech companies are leading the way in doing that. I see. But it doesn't it doesn't work very well. And I don't know why. Is it just too hard to sell? Is the market very illiquid for these things? Why is it so? The volume is really low. And some of the problems are that, other than the fact that these are often reductions in emissions and not actual removal, so it's not even doing anything to solve the problem. It's On just, paper, it sounds like it is. It's it, good. Right. But in the end, it's just making it less bad. Uh-huh. And so if you're you. Still dumping your trash in the street. But isn't it better if you dump less trash in the street? Yeah. But to give my rant of. Paul talked about a coal-fired power plant and natural gas-fired power plant. I mean, in the European trading scheme, what you had is people actually building plants to destroy a greenhouse gas and then sell the credit into that, which in the carbon offset world, people are really worried about additionality. Like, would this have otherwise happened? Well, these markets were fundamentally set up to create some sort of weird additionality that wouldn't have otherwise happened. The biggest thing, and I think what drives both me and Paul It's just very simple. Money needs to go to paying people to remove carbon. And so when you're taking money and putting it to something that does not fundamentally solve the problem, that's an issue. That's why basically we're saying let's only focus on things that take carbon out of the atmosphere because at the end of the day, that's the marketplace that does need to be flourishing and be quite large. And then building a market for these services too, or I don't, is there actually a carbon removal marketplace that exists? Is this the first one? I would say mostly no. If you are looking at carbon offsets that were created as offsets because they were planting trees, then yes, that's a carbon removal thing. But that is a small percentage of the 
overall carbon offsets market and the offsets that are being traded. So no, there is no exclusively carbon removal marketplace where people can buy and sell these removal credits. And I was starting to say earlier, one of the issues is if you are creating these offsets, you have to find a counterparty to buy these. It's not like you're just selling these out into some distributor or something like that or a broker. You have to find a specific buyer. And often the buyers who are currently participating in these are looking for very specific things about these offsets. They might be looking for an offset program that is close to them regionally. So if they are a major corporation and they want to say that they took action that impacted their local community, or they might be looking for these things that are called co-benefits. Co-benefits would be, say it's a forestry project in Kenya, and in the course of planting these trees and generating revenue from these offsets, they're also using those funds to set up schools in the area or build new sources of clean water or something like that. These are ostensibly good things. Those things should be happening. But when you start focusing on these continually added benefits on top of it, that's less funding and less resources that's going to the heart of the problem, which is we need to remove as much carbon dioxide from the atmosphere as quickly as we possibly can. So let me make an inference here. So what you're saying is that you would like a fungible commodity market. Like if you're buying 100 pork bellies, you don't get to choose like, I want this guy from Wyoming or I want this guy from Minnesota, right? You're just like, I removed a ton of carbon. I don't care if it's in Angola or in Burbank. Mm -hmm. Yes. I want to see people thinking about it as a ton is a ton is a ton. It doesn't matter where it's stored as long as it's stored and in a mostly permanent fashion and removed from the atmosphere. And if that ends up being stored in things like products or plastics or anything like that, I'm fine with that. I would much rather deal with a trash problem than a global warming problem. I would make that trade myself. Can you walk me through the basics of the mechanics of how this market might work? How does Giagra, codename Giagra, name (laughs) to probably be changed, work? So what we're going to do is build a better marketplace that makes it easier for people to pay other people to sequester carbon dioxide. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to create a new cryptocurrency token that is backed by carbon removal assets. So it's an asset-based currency or, That's right. or financial instrument. Based on a, a real physical manifestation of carbon removal. So each token calling it the TON token. T-O-N. T-O-N. We're claiming that right now. There's no way to reserve that name, but you heard it here first. So each token is equivalent to, or will always be pegged in price or value to one ton of CO2. So if you are a buyer and you want to buy 100 tons of negative emissions credits, which is what we're calling these, and get that credit to your name, it's going to cost you 100 tokens. And if you are a seller who has generated negative emissions credits and you've sequestered 15 tons of CO2 in a tennis shoe that you've been manufacturing, which is a thing that's happened, then you would receive 15 tokens. They're doing something already and you're paying them to remove the carbon. You're rewarding that, That's them. one potential group of these negative emissions credits suppliers. Yeah. Okay. We're making it such that this token is now the medium of exchange between these parties that are trading these things. You don't have to find a counterparty anymore. You can just sell it into our marketplace and then have a buyer buy your negative emissions credits. And the tokens now are the medium of exchange. 
the tokens are also going to be just out there like every other cryptocurrency token and being traded on third-party exchanges or decentralized exchanges or wherever. And those are going to be traded by speculators. And speculators are a good thing for the economy because they reduce the volatility in pricing. And by these speculators who buy these tokens, expecting that they'll go up in value, that puts a price on the token. And if the token represents one ton of CO2, we're saying that the price of the token is now the price of carbon removal. We will, for the first time, have established a universal carbon price. Does that exist anywhere? No. No. No, not at all. Nothing comes even close to that. And the closest thing is there have been many different reports, and you can find these with the UNIPCC or with other researchers where they estimate what's called the social cost of carbon. Yeah. And I just want to call you out for using an acronym. That's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Boom. Intergovernmental Panel <laughs> of Christoph Jospace, Mac and Paul Gamble down. You know, it's okay. I like when Paul gets going because it's important. But what the social cost of carbon comes down to is it's the additional damage that one ton of CO2 will cause to the atmosphere. Spoiler alert, it goes up over time because the more CO2 in the atmosphere, the more climate change is going to hurt. And there's been some really good modeling done around thinking of, okay, well, how much is this going to cost? And it costs different amounts in different places. I've seen between 50 to $150. Mm-hmm. Right. It's definitely north of 50 That's the social cost of carbon, though? Per ton. Per yeah. ton. Okay. Keep in mind, we've got this feedback loop, which Paul talked about earlier, where there's all sorts of greenhouse gases just escaping into the atmosphere because we live in a warmer climate where previously stored carbon is now released. So there's one other aspect to this that I haven't gone over yet, which is a very important one, which is the validation of these sequestration activities. How do we know, and this is a very important purchasing decision or information for buyers of these credits, how do we know that this carbon dioxide has actually been sequestered? How do we prove that? Yeah, how do you, how do you even know? What do you do with that? Well, right now, the way that it works is there are all sorts of different what are called protocols for these different methodologies of... Over 200. Protocols and methodologies is some sexy talk going on right here. <laughs> There are a lot of these, and they're often a very manual process. And you have people who are working as auditors, and then the auditors actually get audited. And it just adds to these layers of complexity that increases the overhead cost for suppliers, which mm -hmm. I have to say that the higher the overhead cost is for these people to supply it, the less sequestration that you're going to have happening, because it's going to be more difficult for entrance to the market. What we're trying to do is reduce the barriers of entry to the carbon sequestration industry. So we want to make that auditing and validation a lot easier. And we see a lot of opportunity to do that through the use of Internet of Things devices and automatic sensors. For example, one of the other participants with me and us on the hackathon is a developer named Jason Horton. And Jason and I participated in a hackathon back in February that was sponsored by MetaMask and IPFS. And we had a project that was called Carbon Harvest. And that was actually another progenitor of this idea. Carbon Harvest was based around incentivizing farmers to change their farming practices to sequester more carbon dioxide in their soil as a carbon pool. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a very, very important way. I've seen estimates as high as 25% of the carbon dioxide that we have to remove could be stored in our soil. Soil that's also growing crops on it. At the same time, it's doing both. Yeah, sure. The soil can also be 
land that cattle are roaming over and just by moving cattle around differently and having them eat the grass at the height of that grass actually will allow the soil to not only sequester carbon, but also retain way more water. It's exciting. This is big. It's like like magic as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. For the farmers, it's really three things that they have to do. They need to start using cover crops. They need to rotate their crops and they need to stop tilling. Those three activities, which are very simple, have these benefits of storing more carbon in the ground because you're seeing more bacterial growth in the soil. It's healthier for the plants that they're growing. And like Christoph just said, it retains water a lot better. So you're far more drought resistant. Now, the catch to this is that in order to make these changes from a single crop farm where you are most often being incentivized to do this because of the large seed companies, you're going to face about two to three years of a lower yield of your crops. So it's definitely an investment that you have to make. But afterwards, it's going to help increase yields and ultimately be better for you. So how do we help get them over that hump? Well, one way is we could pay them to do that. You're going to pay them to farm. We're going to pay them to do what they're already doing. Yeah. Just do it in a slightly different way. And that's where the ton token comes in. And so this original idea with this carbon harvest thing was that we would build and develop sensors, carbon soil sensors that you just stick in the ground and they're measuring at like various different points around their farm and then aggregating this data, measuring the carbon content of the soil and the change of it over time. So we look at time zero, how much carbon is there? Okay, note that down, that gets entered into the blockchain and it's immutable data. We check at a month later and we see what the carbon content level is then. And if it's gone up, then we say that you've stored more carbon. Based on how much you've stored, we could automatically issue you tokens and you get credited for the carbon that you stored. That's an automatic process that doesn't really require someone like going to the farm and doing this very manual process. Just IoT and smart contracts. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. One of the things I like, and I, I've kind of harped on this a lot, is I love the idea of products that are being made that can incorporate this. So the IoT stuff sounds like it's an engineering challenge that will probably be solved in the next couple of years, maybe sooner. Yeah. And it's stuff that we want to work on. Like that's from the engineering side. That's the fun thing. Like it's your blood pumping. Yeah. And get that going. <laughs> maybe Chris, if you can tell us about what is it called? Interspace? Is that what it's called? Interface. Interface. Okay. And yeah, they're building the carpets that are carbon negative, yes? Oh, yeah. I love this. It's called their proof positive prototype. And what they're able to do is to take biological matter, which is photosynthesized, our favorite activity, and then they are refining that material into a carpet that's permanently storing carbon. That is cool. It's pretty straightforward. They've proved that it works, but there's no market signal that, hey, we'd like you to do this. That's where we come in. Yeah, I think it's quite important that you're kind of like market making or or seed funding these projects too, where I'm sure there's plenty of projects that want to use carbon as an input that are right on the margin of being profitable and having this like quasi subsidy to encourage them to use this marketplace and come into it is a very natural fit. That's exactly what we're doing. We want to subsidize this and like I said earlier, reduce the barriers to entry. And over time, the hope is that as this is providing more value to the world, the value of the token increases, which would the higher this is, the more incentive there is for people to do sequestration and get paid in these tokens. Yeah, right. If I'm making shoes and I could switch over to to carbon negative shoes and I can get paid to do it, probably makes it a lot cheaper, removes a lot of the risk of being Yeah. And we foresee different ways that third parties could develop around this. So 
let's say you aren't as familiar with cryptocurrencies and blockchains and you don't want to take on the risk of the price volatility that comes with these. Well, third-party lenders could develop where you have a financier who is going to finance or invest in a sequestration project and come to an agreement with the sequesterer and you say, okay, we'll pay you a fixed amount in cash in fiat currency and we'll take the tokens as a hedge. And the growth and value of these tokens is our profit model. And there are all sorts of different things that could develop around this that make this ecosystem grow. Yeah, I'm sure there'd be cases where there'd be like some farmer like, yeah, uh, get yourself a Nano S, get yourself a hardware <laughs> wallet and you get the interface. With yeah, the... something I've learned doing businesses over the years is that customer education is a difficult problem and you want to reduce the amount that you have to do in order to be successful wherever you can. Yeah, I'm sure third parties would spring up to do that. It seems yeah. like a valuable service, especially because these markets are a little intimidating. We're all kind of a deep into that world. So for us, it's very fun and we read about it and sort of live and breathe it. But your customers aren't necessarily those people. I mean, the customers that are in there, the people who speculate in crypto markets, they're providing liquidity and they provide a valuable service, but they aren't necessarily the customer, the people that we need to reach first. Well, in some ways they are because we need to get these tokens out into the world through some sort of token generation event. In fact, actually, what we're talking about here is not just a two, but a three-sided platform that we're trying to build. So we need the suppliers of these negative emissions credits. We need the buyers of these credits, but we also need the cryptocurrency investment speculators to provide that liquidity, like you just mentioned. So we have to support all these different groups and their needs. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. People don't really talk about markets in that trilateral kind of way. No. And that's kind of the new novelty of cryptocurrencies and the token economy. It's fun and really exciting. It's great. It's maybe cliche to say, but you can tokenize everything. <laughs> yeah, you hamming it up a little bit. You can tokenize everything. Don't say it too loud because Paul will take the bait. <laughs> <laughs> I do believe that strongly. <laughs> I think we're um, pretty good level right here. But is there anything else we should update people on before we sign off? Well, I just want to say thank you to the rest of the members of the team. This has been really fun over the last four weeks. So Christoph and I had decided to go all in on this a while ago, but didn't really have plans for how we were going to get started. And the Blockchain for Social Impact Hackathon came along and the timing was perfect. We've got a team of seven people who've been working on this. So in addition to the three of us here, we've had our developer, Jason Horton, we have our product and UX designer, Zach Roth. And we have two others, Michael Carver, who has a lot of experience in the financial sector and market making. And then Alexandra Guerra, who works for a utility in California and is an engineer and has a lot of experience working in these energy markets and thinking about climate change. And in fact, Christoph and Alexandra have a tie through Klaus Lackner. They both worked for him. Did we talk about Klaus earlier? Yeah, and we're going to bring Klaus onto this podcast for sure. And I look forward to that because he is one of the very few people who gets it and talks about scale in a way that is not jargony, but also coming from a physicist. Yeah. So I just want to say thank you to the team for all the work you've done over the last four weeks. And we're really excited to submit all the materials to the hackathon. Oh, yeah. We're really excited to uh, see how that plays out here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we're going full steam ahead either yeah. way, but hopefully it's a good result. Thanks for listening. And I'm Ross Kenyon. And this is Christoph Jospe. Catch you next time.